Hey, good morning, church. So we're going to be reading today from Acts 28, verses 25 through 27 in Korean, and 28 through 31 in English. Would you guys actually join me standing up as I read the Word of God? This is the Word of God. 서로 마치 아니하여 흩어질 때 바울이 한 말로 이러 가로되 성령이 선지가 이사라리오 너희 조상들에게 말씀하신 것이 없도다. 이러스되 이 백성에게 가서 말하기를 너희가 듣기는 들어도 도무지 깨닫지 못하며 보기는 보아도 도무지 알지 못한도다. 이 백성들이 마음이 완약하여져서 그 귀로는 둔하게 듣고 그 눈은 감았으니 이는 눈으로 보고 귀로 듣고 마음으로 깨달아 돌아와나니 고침을 받을까 합니다 하였으니 In verse 20 through 31 in English. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Amen. <clears throat> Thanks, Myung. Thanks, Dale. Go ahead and be seated. If you're new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to have you. And uh, as a church, we are going through the book of Acts, and we're on our second-to-last teaching from the book of Acts. Can't believe uh, we flew through it as quickly as we did. Uh, uh, We've been doing our scripture readings in multiple languages uh, to remind us that the good news of the gospel, especially as it's articulated in Acts, is that it's for all peoples across all of the world, uh, for all nations and tribes and tongues, and that the gospel of Jesus, particularly in our uh, racially and ethnically fractured world, the gospel of Jesus is our hope for unity as a family. Amen? And so that's why we do that. It's been such an awesome thing. Real quickly, before we dive into the the teaching for today, let me just give you a little heads up as far as what we're doing and where we're going uh, in the weeks ahead. So uh, we are going to do our third round as a church of a teaching series, a topical teaching series called Things That Are Hard to Do. And for those of you who might be new, we've done this. We did this in 2018, we did it in 2019. And what it is, is it's a topical teaching series that gives us an opportunity to address some of the more kind of quote-unquote tough topics that we come across. We've done all sorts of things about race, about sexuality, about the end times, about just kind of anything. So let me share with you, we have six coming up, six topics that we are going to address. Some of these are from us as elders. Some of these are member-submitted questions. Some of these are ones that I just uh, wanted to address. So we're going to look at the subject of prayer. Sometimes it's hard to pray. Anybody can admit, sometimes it's hard to pray. Uh, We're going to look at the subject of abuse in the church, particularly in the light of certain uh, high-profile church leaders and and harm that they have committed against uh, the church of Jesus Christ. So we're going to deal with that topic head on. Uh, Sometimes it's hard to truly believe that you are loved. Sometimes it's hard to believe that you are loved. Uh, Number four, week four, it's hard sometimes to come to grips with hell and to talk about that very difficult subject of hell. It's hard to, at times, interact with people of other faiths. And lastly, it's hard to stop a habitual sin. Apparently, it's hard to say habitual sin. It's hard to stop a habitual sin. So, you know, in case you're looking for a church that's just going to do like the feel-good spring teaching series, uh, you know where to find us, right? 
but I'm thankful for those of you members who had, had texted in or emailed in a question. A great, a great number of these are actually from you, the people of the church. And so I encourage you to be looking ahead to that. And then when we're done with that topical series, we are going to jump into the Sermon on the Mount. And looking forward to that. But with that said, uh, let's pray together today. We can pray. I love uh, the, the family of God that we're even just talking about. We have uh, Pastor Jason is actually not here today. He's preaching at another church, so we can pray for him as we get going here today. And then actually a friend of mine, Pastor Chris Rich from uh, Marysville, uh, uh, Mercy Fellowship in Marysville, visiting here today. Don't worry. When I visited your church last summer, you made me get up on stage and do stuff. I'm not going to do that to you. I'm just going to call you out in front of everybody here. So... Uh, what, did, what did Pastor Chris said when he came and preached a couple years ago? He said, uh, Aaron invited him to come preach so that you could meet your next pastor. He goes, don't worry, Aaron's not going anywhere. I just want you to know that when you want to buy a house, Marysville is where you can afford to do it, and you'll go to there. So I got a good, I got a good laugh. But let's just pray uh, not only for our church, but let's pray for the body of Christ. Just a reminder that pastors and others just visiting each other, and we are all part of one united family. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that this gospel message that went out uh, through these apostles, through Paul in particular, to all the ends of the world now has, all the ends of the world has now reached uh, all corners of the globe, uh, even to places like Snohomish County in Washington. And Lord, I ask and I pray uh, your blessing on Pastor Jason today as he's preaching at another church. I ask and pray your blessing on Mercy Fellowship up in Marysville as Chris is getting a bit of a break. Lord, I ask and I pray for all those uh, who are saved by the blood of Jesus and who have the scriptures open. Lord, would you meet with your people here today? Lord, for us, as we open uh, our eyes to read the word of God today, I pray that you would help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And I pray you would give each and every single one of us soft and receptive and teachable hearts today, uh, Lord, that we might encounter you even in the storms and the difficulties of life. We would know that you are in control and that you are full of love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. So, uh, so I, am, I am not a Mormon, but I just wanted to get that out of the way. Uh, a lot of people have been asking. No, one of the... <laughs> I'm off to a great start. One of the, one, let me say it differently. One of the reasons that I'm not a Mormon is that Mormonism teaches that around the time of the exile, a group of ancient Jews got on a ship and came all the way across the Atlantic Ocean, through the Mediterranean, across the Atlantic, uh, and populated the North American continent. And that's kind of the, the origins of the Book of Mormon. And I actually went and read uh, more than my fair share of the, the first book of, I think it's Nephi, uh, in the Book of Mormon this week to kind of go back and reacquaint myself with that story. But the problem is, is historically and archaeologically, it just doesn't hold water. Ah, see what I did there? Sorry, you'll get that. The 11 o'clock service will get it probably. But the, the, the reality is the ancient Jewish people were not a seafaring people. They just really were not. Fishing boats was about it. When you look at the interactions that the ancient Jewish people had with water, uh, water came to be this symbol of chaos. You think, about, you think about even going back to Genesis 6 with the waters of the flood coming in and, and, and wiping away all of the, the sinfulness and the brokenness. You think about uh, the, the origin story of the people of Israel being set free from slavery in Egypt, having to walk through the waters of the Red Sea and then turning around and watching 
watching the waters come back and sweep away the Pharaoh and all of his armies. You think about in the story of like Samuel or kings, that the, the early monarchy period, who were the, the worst bad guys in that period? It's the Philistines. And where did the Philistines come from? They came from the sea. They were seafaring people. People of like the, the, their armor even would look like sea serpents and watery sort of imagery. You think about Jonah, the, the waters of chaos swamping the boat, or, or maybe in particular Daniel chapter 7 where the beasts come up out of the sea. The sea is where monsters come from. This is the mentality of the ancient Jewish people. There's a scholar, Michael Heiser, who sums it up well. He says, in the ancient world, the sea was a thing of dread. It was unpredictable and untamable. It was a place upon which humans couldn't live. Consequently, the sea was often used as a metaphor for chaos, destruction, and death. The power and chaotic unruliness of the sea was symbolized in both the Old Testament and a wide range of ancient Near Eastern literature with a dragon or sea monster variously known as Leviathan and Rahab, or in our culture, Godzilla. You know the new Godzilla vs. Kong movie came out? I don't know if you guys have seen Godzilla vs. Kong. I went back and watched Godzilla, Kong Skull Island, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. I want to make sure I knew like the characters' motivations, you know, going into <laughs> Godzilla vs. Kong. My favorite part, though, in Godzilla vs. Kong was when they realized that their moms had the same name and then they could just get along together. So, sorry, there's like three of you got that joke. That was a Justice League joke. I'm sorry. But it was, I was actually thinking about it as I watched Godzilla vs. Kong. And like Godzilla comes up out of the sea and that's not some new thing. Like that is absolutely the way that the ancient Near Eastern peoples and particularly the ancient Jews viewed the, the ocean and viewed the waters of chaos. And if any of you have ever been like, I don't know, fishing or out kind of out into like open water out on the sea uh, and you've ever felt the power of the ocean, you can all of a sudden realize just how small and fragile and puny we all are, Right? I remember growing up in Alaska, my, my grandpa would take us fishing from time to time out in the, the, the Prince William Sound. And man, like the, the waters, when it gets going, you all of a sudden realize just how not in control you really are. Think about the ancient Hebrews out in their fishing vessels. Now, Paul, Paul is interesting because the Apostle Paul, through all of his travels and all of his journeys, he, he becomes quite uh, acquainted with the sea. In fact, there's a passage in 2 Corinthians 11 where he talks about uh, multiple times that three different times he said that he was shipwrecked. And actually, 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians is very likely written before this story in Acts chapter 27 takes place. And so the, the, the reality is Paul was probably shipwrecked four times. Four times. And yet, as we read this story, Paul... He, he seems to know something that others didn't know. Paul seems a little bit unflappable. Paul seems a little bit calm and cool and collected and just okay. And I think it's, it's because he knows that, that in the chaos and the storms of life, Jesus meets us with his grace. And that's the big idea that I want to make for all of us today, that, that, that life has chaos, Amen. Life has storms. The, the, the imagery of the sea being a storm is not just an ancient imagery. It is absolutely present and relevant for all of us. We go through storms. We go through waves. We encounter chaos in life. But yet, if we would look on Jesus, we would see 
that he meets us with his grace. So let's pick up in chapter 27, verse 1. And by the way, um, ocean storms, like the seafaring voyage, uh, is a very popular style of literature in the Hellenistic world. You think back to the story of like Homer's The Odyssey has all of this, you know, ship uh, voyage sort of language. And, and, and scholars, multiple scholars will point out that Acts chapter 27 is like one of the most well-crafted stories in all of the New Testament. So much so that some skeptics would say that this was made up or that, that Luke was making up this story. He just wanted to tell a fancy tale. There's no reason to think that, but we do get to give some honor and credit to Luke, the human author of this chapter, for writing a darn good tale. And so I just want to kind of read through this whole chapter uh, and and make some kind of comments at the end of it. I just want to read this story for you because it's such a cool story. Chapter 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we, there's Luke involved in this, that we were to sail to Italy, they handed over Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion named Julius of the Imperial Regiment. When we had boarded a ship uh, of Adramitium, we put to sea, intending to sail to ports along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and allowed him to go to his friends to receive their care. When we had put out to sea from there, we sailed along the northern coast of Cyprus because the winds were against us. After sailing through the open sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we reached Myra in Lycia. There the Centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. Sailing slowly for many days, with difficulty, we arrived at Canidus. Since the wind did not allow us to approach it, we sailed off the south side of Crete, off Salmone. With still more difficulty, we sailed along the coast and came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. Again, multiple scholars point out that the, the knowledge, the, the nautical knowledge that's demonstrated here shows um, first-hand experiential uh, knowledge of this. It's really cool to be able to see this very practical sort of stuff lived out in the Bible. Now, here's where we just landed at a place called Fair Havens. But don't worry, they're not going to stay in Fair Havens. By now, much time had passed, and the voyage was already dangerous. Since the Day of Atonement, or some of your translations might say the fast, was already over, Paul gave his advice and told them, men... I can see that this voyage is headed toward disaster and heavy loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Pause real quickly there. Why is the Day of Atonement mentioned? Why is the fast or the festival mentioned right there? Because it lets us know what time of year it is. The Day of Atonement, the, the, the Jewish calendar follows a lunar schedule, so the Day of Atonement shifts depending on the phases of the moon, but it's always, usually, in late September or early October. There's a Roman historian who wrote that the dangerous season of sailing begins after the 15th of September, and sailing pretty much in the Mediterranean would cease from about November to March. So Paul here, he's not necessarily having some prophetic vision. Not yet. He's just simply saying, hey guys, it's kind of dumb that we're out here sailing 
in the dangerous season. It's late in the season. It's after the Day of Atonement. It's in the fall. We might want to exercise some caution. Verse 11. But the centurion paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than what Paul said. Go figure, manly men out at sea saying it'll be fine. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter and the majority decided to set sail from there, hoping somehow to reach Phoenix, uh, not Arizona, a harbor on Crete facing the southwest. And that would be a real bad uh, storm if you ended up in Phoenix. That's like, that's like Wizard of Oz stuff right there. No, they're a different Phoenix, a harbor on Crete facing the southwest and the northwest, and the, they're going to try to winter there. But verse 13, well, a gentle south wind sprang up. They thought they had achieved their purpose. Ha ha, we're going to make it. We can do it. We've got a gentle south wind. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. But before long, a fierce wind called a northeaster rushed down from the island. And since the ship was caught and unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. After running under the shelter of a little island called Kauda, we were barely able to get control of the skiff. After hoisting it up, they used ropes and tackle and girded the ship. And fearing they would run aground uh, on the Sirtis, they lowered the drift anchor. And in this way, they were driven along. Because we were being severely battered by the storm, they began to jettison the cargo the next day. Does that make you think of any uh, particular stories from the Old Testament? Maybe the story of Jonah? Jettison cargo, cargo battered around. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. This is, get this, for many days, the storm was so bad that neither sun nor stars appear. And the severe storm kept raging. Finally, all hope was fading that we would be saved. Anybody here, you know, uh, I don't know if it got windy recently. I don't know if you lost power at your house. You know that feeling of like losing power and kind of how hopeless you feel or how dark it feels. You can't charge your phone. You can't use the microwave. You're having to eat like a cold can of pork and beans with an old Zippo lighter that you warmed up, right? Like that feeling, we're so, we're so spoiled like with modern electricity and technology. Can you imagine being in a world where you're, you've lost the, the sun, you've lost the moon, you've lost the stars for multiple days, and you're in a wooden boat? The terror, the sheer terror. There's, there's no way to know even where they are because you would use the stars to help navigate your position. All hope was fading that we would be saved. Now, verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, you men should have followed my advice. I'm glad that the apostle Paul was not above a little told you so. That makes me feel better about my own sanctification process. You men should have followed my advice not to sail from Crete and sustain this damage and loss. Now I urge you to take courage. Listen to this. Listen to how different this is from what he said a moment ago. Because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only the ship. For last night, an angel of the God I belong to and the God I serve, this angel came and stood by me and said, don't be afraid, Paul. It's necessary for you to appear before Caesar. And indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. Paul is using this massive storm as an opportunity to share the gospel with these sailors. 
God actually has entrusted you to me. So take courage, men, because I believe God that it will be just the way it was told to me. But, well, we have to run aground on some island. (laughs) Just, hey, don't worry. We're going to totally lose a ship. We're going to run aground on some island. I'm like, oh, great. But don't worry, none of y'all are going to die. When the 14th night came, okay, again, like the, the best analogy I can give you, imagine being in a power outage for 14 days. Y'all would be losing your minds. 14th night came, we were drifting in the Adriatic Sea, somewhere in the waters near Italy. And about midnight, the sailors thought they were approaching land. So they took soundings and found it to be 120 feet deep. And when they'd sailed a little farther and sounded again, they found it to be 90 feet deep. And then, fearing we might run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern. That's the, one of the parts of the boat. I don't know which one it is. And they prayed for daylight to come. My grandpa would be so ashamed of me. Uh, some sailors, now listen to this, some sailors tried to escape from the ship. And they'd put down the skiff into the sea like the lifeboat, pretending they were going to put out anchors from the bow. But Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes, holding the skiff, and let it drop away. Just by the way, the the favor that is shown to Paul by by these Roman jailers, by these these, uh, imperial guards, is pretty remarkable. Not only that they showed him kindness back at the beginning of the chapter, but they're listening to him. They actually believed him that an angel from the Lord showed up and gave him this message. So they're listening. Paul said, unless they stay in the ship, they can't be saved. So they cut the ropes and they let it drop away. Now, when it was about daylight, Paul urged them all to take food, saying, listen, it has been 14 days that you've been waiting and going without food, having eaten nothing. So I urge you, take some food, for this is for your survival, since none of you will lose a hair. From your head. I wonder if he's quoting Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount there. There's also some references to in the Psalms as well. So after he said these things and he'd taken some bread, he gave thanks to God. Again, he's just, he's just living his life, worshiping God. He, he gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them. And after he broke it, he began to eat. And they were all encouraged and they took some food themselves. And all in all, there were 276 of us on the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing the grain overboard into the sea. That was a good meal. Chuck the leftovers in the ocean. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they sighted a bay with a beach. And they planned to try to run the ship ashore if they could. They were, they were trying to do that Suez Canal thing. After cutting loose the anchors, sorry, too soon, they left, they left them in the sea. At the same time, loosening the ropes that held the rudders, and then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and headed for the beach. But before they could get to the beach, they struck a sandbar and ran the ship aground. The bow jammed fast and remained immovable, while the stern began to break up because of the pounding of the waves. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that no one could swim away and escape, but the centurion kept them from carrying out their plan because he wanted to save Paul, again, look at the favor and the grace of God over and over and over again. So he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest were to follow, some on planks and some on debris from the ship. And in this way, the word, the prophetic word that God spoke to Paul came to pass. 
everyone safely reached the shore. Praise God. Now, keep going into 28 because the story's not quite done yet. Once safely ashore, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The local people there, the word in Greek is barbarians. And, and it, it maybe doesn't quite have such a negative connotation as it does for us, but it means that Greek was not their primary spoken language. They had a different language, a local language. And, and Greek, the, the language of Greek was the lingua franca of the day. So they showed us extraordinary kindness. They lit a fire and took us in since it was raining and cold. Now, as Paul gathered a bundle of brushwood and put it on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the local people saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to one another, this man no doubt is a murderer. Even though he has escaped the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Now, that's superstitious, but I can at least like empathize with it, right? That guy just went through all that storm, all the shipwreck, and they all made it to sea. That's crazy. The gods must be after him because he got bit by a snake. Now, if I was Paul, and we're all thankful that I'm not, but if I was Paul, this is the part of the story where I throw my hands up in exasperation and say, God, what gives? What did I do? What is going on? You know, Paul has spent time in prison. He's been beaten. He's had all sorts of opposition. But through all of that, it's because Paul was preaching the confrontational gospel of Jesus Christ, that Caesar is not, in fact, Lord. Jesus is, in fact, Lord. He's the rightful ruler over all of the heavens and the earth. He died and rose again to offer us forgiveness and to offer us inclusion into his kingdom. Paul was getting in trouble knowing what he was doing. Paul was facing opposition from the Jewish religious leaders and from the the Roman political leaders because of preaching the gospel. But all throughout chapter 27 and into chapter 28, Paul is suffering just because it's winter and it's stormy and just because we live in a world with snakes. And I don't know if, if, if I'm alone in this. I don't think I am. But this is the part of the story where I throw my hands up and I say, I can't deal with this anymore. Why am I going through all of this? What is happening here? But that's not what Paul does. It says in verse 5 that Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no harm. Like the great theologian Taylor Swift once said, shake it off, right? Man. I'm still riding that like Easter Sunday energy. So the people are looking, they expected that Paul is going to swell up or suddenly drop dead. And after they waited a long time and saw nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said, nope, not a murderer. He's a deity. <laughs> He's a god. We're a little all over the place here. Now, by the way, um, we're not told in this particular narrative that Paul corrected them. We do know that previously when, when, uh, when and they were in uh, Ephesus, and they were worshiping them as gods. They said, no, 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 we're just men like you. And so we have no reason to believe that Paul accepted worship or something like that. And, and we've seen this before from him. He used it as an opportunity to talk about the one true God. So they changed their minds and said he was a god. Now in the area around that place was an estate belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius who welcomed us and entertained us hospitably for three days. Publius' father was in bed suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went to him, 
and praying and laying his hands on him, he healed him. He's still doing gospel ministry. Shipwrecks and storms and snake bites. He's still going to tell people about Jesus, heal the sick. After this, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. And so they heaped many honors on us. And when we sailed, when we finally sailed away, they gave us what we needed. Ministry continues on. The ministry of of the gospel of Jesus still continues on. And next week, we're going to pick up here in chapter 28, and we're going to see Paul finally arrive in Rome in the conclusion of the story of the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. But I would like to just make a few observations from this story, a few principles for us to draw out and some things to think about. You know, one of the the first things that we have to acknowledge when we read a story like this is that we don't deal particularly well with chaos. We don't deal particularly well with chaos, but, but nothing in the Bible would lead us to any other conclusion than that chaos is to be expected. That's the first point I want to make. Chaos is to be expected. Chaos, you know, we, we've been... We've been We've been raised up, even the oldest among us, we've all been raised in an environment after the Enlightenment, the age of the Enlightenment, which basically says, if you give us enough time, if you give us enough resources, we can basically figure everything out and we can help create utopia. We can help create heaven here on earth. And that's not even that much of an exaggeration. You can go read some of the documents of like the founding fathers of the United States or scientists or people, Europeans in that, in that time, in the 1700s in particular, it was, it was believed that we could just solve everything. We could fix everything. We could solve uh, poverty. We could solve disease. We could, you know, we could travel the whole globe and we could have kind of this, this perfect utopia here on earth. And now we're dealing with, one of the reasons why we're dealing with so much anger and frustration in our culture today about problems and issues that we have is because we good Westerners, we good Americans have been catechized to believe that we could have a life free from chaos. And it's just flatly untrue. And frankly, it's flatly unbiblical. We, we should expect whether it's storms or snake bites or anything there in between we should expect chaos in this life. And let me, I want to say something here. This might, this might sound a little bit controversial, but I assure you that it is not. Even before mankind sinned and fell in the garden, there was chaos in the world that needed to be tamed. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Verse 1, everyone knows, in the beginning God created the heavens and earth. What does verse 2 say? Genesis 1-2 says... The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of what? Of the water. So before God said, let there be light, before God separated, there was water. There was chaos. In Genesis 1.28, God creates humanity, male and female, in the image and likeness of God, and he gives them a mandate. He says, go fill the earth, go, go procreate, go fill the earth, and what? What is the verb that God uses with humanity? Again, before sin entered the world, he told them to go out and what? subdue, subdue, that God created a garden 
the, 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 the temple, the holy place of God, where God and mankind dwelled together. But the picture that we are to take away from those early chapters of Genesis is that the rest of the world needed some image bearers of God to go out and put God's ruling and order into the world. So even before sin entered the picture, there was this element of wildness to the world. And now... Since sin has entered the picture, Paul the Apostle writes about in Romans that the whole world is like groaning under the bondage of decay. So there was wildness in the world before sin. Humanity's sin, we have failed to fill the earth and subdue it as God commanded us to do. And now sin has compounded and exacerbated all of the problems of life. Friends, why are we so surprised that life is chaotic? I wish I could go back over a year ago and preach this to myself before the pandemic ever hit because I was shocked. You were shocked. We were all shocked. But we shouldn't be shocked. This is just what life is like in a fallen world, is it not? So we need to adjust our expectations. But we also need somebody to do what humanity failed to do, to come into the world, into the forces of chaos, and to conquer it. And point number two is that our chaos is conquered by Jesus. Our chaos is ultimately conquered by Jesus. There's a lot of different ways to think about the gospel We sing songs like Jesus paid it all, the financial freedom, the debt forgiveness metaphor. We can can use, uh, you know, the analogy of marriage, right? Ephesians 5, Christ in the church. Well, one of my favorite and underused uh, images of what the gospel is, is Jesus defeating Godzilla. Yeah, I know, no, 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 that's not weird. Trust me. There's one of the most important chapters in the entire Old Testament is Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7 is where we see this figure known as the Son of Man. What is the number one term that Jesus used for himself? Son of Man. Jesus loved Daniel chapter 7. He even quoted Daniel chapter 7 to the Sanhedrin before he went to the cross to die for our sins. He said, you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. He's quoting Daniel chapter 7. But the part of Daniel chapter 7 that we might not be as familiar with is at the beginning of Daniel 7, Daniel is having a vision. Those of you who are here, when we went through the book of Daniel, you might remember that in his vision, it says that these beasts came up out of the sea fearsome, terrifying, tooth, claw, nasty, evil beasts. And they're going throughout the earth, bringing destruction and devastation and chaos. And it says that the Ancient of Days shows up and he takes his seat and he says, we need to do something about these beasts from the sea. And it is at that moment that the Son of Man appears and is commissioned by God Almighty to go and deal with the forces of chaos and devastation and destruction. And friends, one of the ways to think about the cross event, when Jesus is there hanging on the cross, being beaten and being nailed for our sins and for our iniquities, it is as though he is facing the worst that the beasts from the sea have to offer. He is taking all of the forces of chaos, all of the forces of death, all of the forces of destruction upon himself. And when he cries out, it is finished, it is as though Jesus is saying, hell did their worst, but I am overcoming it. This is 
Such a cool way to think of the gospel that Jesus defeating the forces of chaos and death and destruction. And when he rose from the dead on that third day, what is it that they mistook Jesus for? A gardener. The true human. The one who did not fail to subdue the earth, to rule over it. Where we all failed to live up to our created, God-given purpose, Jesus is the true humanity who subdues the earth and conquers the forces of chaos. Which is why when, when Jesus does things like walking on the waves, it's not just some parlor trick. It's not just some showing off kind of a thing. It's him saying, I am the one who can tread upon the waves of the sea. I am the one who can conquer the forces of death and chaos. And because of what Jesus did, point number three is this, that in Jesus, chaos now becomes cleansing. Chaos now becomes cleansing. Boy, I tell you what, I loved getting to worship last Sunday with you guys and baptize. We baptized 10 people over the course of the whole morning. Praise Jesus for that, right? I got a text from a friend uh, who got to lead someone to the Lord this last week and they're going to come to the 11 o'clock service later today. We might just need to fill that tank back up again. Pastor Steve, can I tell you? Okay, we're going to see. Be praying. Uh, someone who has turned away from Islam and has decided to follow Jesus. When we see the waters of baptism, again, think about the waters of chaos now being transformed into an image of cleansing. Think about the people of Israel terrified, fearful, walking through the middle of the Red Sea, seeing this water, like, I hope this doesn't just fall over on us, getting through that, turning around and seeing the waters of chaos sweeping away the Pharaoh and all of his armies. And yet at that same moment, those waters of chaos were the waters of cleansing that set the people of Israel free to go live a new life in the promised land with their God. And for us, for us, the water of chaos becomes, in Jesus, cleansing. Let me, let me say it to you this way. Jesus intends to use the chaos that you and I go through to change us, to draw us closer to him, to wash away the ungodly parts of our hearts, the ungodly parts of our lives. In Jesus, chaos becomes cleansing, but do you know what I do? Fight him. I resist. I whine. I whine. I grumble. I complain. I, you know, anybody with me on that? I know I'm not alone in that. I've heard some of you whine, okay? <laughs> grown adults, grown men and women, just, Lord, why? But friends, in Jesus, though we go through storms, though we go through chaos, he intends it to draw us closer to himself. That I, I Call me crazy, but I believe that when we see the Apostle Paul so calm in the middle of all of these storms, it's because he knew that Jesus had defeated the forces of chaos and that Jesus was using those storms in Paul's life to shape him and change him and also to help with the mission to go forward. Friends, in Jesus, chaos becomes cleansing. And so I want to invite you into a few things before we go to 
the table of the Lord to celebrate the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. I just want to offer you four thoughts, four, four kind of closing points here by way of application, how we live with chaos. Number one, friends, I invite you to in- adjust your expectations. Adjust your expectations. We, we need to help hold each other accountable in this, right? When the storms of life come, why, God? That's betraying a, a, a mentality, a Western, post-Enlightenment, American mentality. We need to adjust our expectations. By the way, like, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen in the chaos and the storms of life? What's the absolute worst thing? You die. Thank you, Ashley. And what did Paul say? To live is Christ, but to die is gain. The worst possible thing that could happen to you in the storms of life is you die and you depart to be with Jesus until the day of his resurre- until the day of his return and the resurrection of the body and the new heavens and the new earth. Awesome. I don't mean to make light of it. Like the storms are real, the hardships are real, but but we need to adjust our expectations by God's grace. Number two, you need to let him turn your chaos into cleansing. When you're in those moments, not, Lord, why is this happening to me? But, Lord, how do you want to shape me and change me and, and wash me and correct me and, and bring me closer into the image and likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ? Lord, help me. I know I'm, this is a word for me as much as it is for anyone else. When you go through the storms of life, let him cleanse you in those moments. Number three, let the chaos fuel evangelism. I love, I mean, there's a whole additional sermon to be preached out of here about just time and time again how Paul is letting these storms give him opportunities to witness to the soldiers, to witness to the captain, to witness to the the natives on the island. I mean, he will not let the mission of God stop for a measly storm, a measly little snake bite. There are people out there that need to hear that Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and he's the rightful king over all the nations. And for me, and maybe for you, when I go through chaos and I go through hardship, I have a tendency to want to kind of hunker down, to focus on myself, to lick my wounds, to only think about myself. And it is in those very moments that we actually need to remember Christ died, Christ was risen. We need to tell people about it because you're not the only one going through storms also. They're probably going through storms and they need to hear the good news that Jesus conquered over the beasts from the sea and our worst problems have all been dealt with and we can trust in him. Let, your, let the storms of life, let it fuel evangelism. And lastly, number four, pray for Jesus' return. Pray for Jesus' return. You know, there's a perplexing verse in Revelation chapter 21 In Revelation chapter 21, John, the apostles, having this vision of the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus has returned. All is made well. And it says, you know, Jesus, he he defeats the dragon. Go read it. It's Revelation 20, 19, 20. It's amazing. And in 21, it says, this little phrase says, the sea was no more. Revelation chapter 21. And, and I remember, you know, even being younger, like, well, why is there no sea? Like, I love swimming and people like surfing. And like, why can't we have, why is the new heavens and the new earth have no sea? Friends, it is a picture that when Christ returns, chaos will be defeated forever. And we will enjoy face-to-face relationship with God in the new heavens and the new earth. No more chaos. All has been subdued as it was supposed to be from the beginning because of the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the dragon slayer, the one who tramples on the waves of the sea.
So let's pray for Jesus to return. And until that day, may we be found faithful. Lord, I ask and pray now as we go to the table to eat and to drink, to celebrate the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Lord, as we come to the table now, would we even see it that this moment that looked like defeat from the forces of evil is actually the conquering of the forces of chaos and destruction. Lord, would you help us even now as we come into your presence in this celebratory meal, would you help us to bring our chaos to you and to experience your cleansing and your healing and your washing even in this moment. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.